Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a rainy and humid summer morning here in the capital is Sarah Gowan. Sarah is the Managing Director at Sheffield Young Carers, an independent charity dedicated to supporting young carers and young people affected by drug and alcohol issues within their families. Uh, Sarah, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Yes, uh, nice to be speaking to you all. It's a pleasure having you with us on the programme today, Sarah. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we do record this podcast in early July 2021, and we are therefore still living under some form of COVID social restrictions, and that's now been the case for the best part of the last 15 or so months. Um, So looking back over the, the whole sort of course of this since that first lockdown way back in March 2020 up to this point, how much has this pandemic affected you and your organisation, would you say? Yeah, it's had a very um, dramatic effect um, on us as an organisation. I think like for many people, obviously it has been a roller coaster. There's been times when it's been easier than others. Um, But it has been trying to kind of maintain our service like online when um, it has always been face-to-face. It's always been that very direct work, working with our young people, working with our families. And suddenly we were kind of shifting into a kind of much more digital, online, remote kind of service, um, which we talked about doing for kind of, you know, for a few years, saying we're much pilot list, let's try it out. And then suddenly we were kind of thrust into it in March kind of last year and having to adapt very, very quickly when working with some quite vulnerable kind of young people and families. So really being conscious the whole time around how we could continue to deliver a really quality service for our young people and families, whilst also supporting our staff, who are kind of, they've got all the issues around their own sort of personal issues about how they're dealing with COVID and what it means to suddenly be in lockdown and be, be kind of working from home, and then being able to kind of keep up their morale, keep them going, to, because they're the key to supporting the kind of young people and families. Mm. So certainly as a kind of chief exec of the organisation, it was making sure, one, that we absolutely delivered the best service. In order to do that, that meant that all of our staff needed to be well and their well-being was really, really crucial. So we had the whole issue around kind of going online and then you kind of began to sort of do a bit more face-to-face again. Then it went back online again and then we're doing a bit more face-to-face again. So it's been a real up and a down kind of year. Um, I think we've adapted incredibly well, but it has had its issues. It has been difficult. Um, Some people finding it easier than others. Some of our service users finding it easier than others. So I think it's just been that kind of bit of a roller coaster, um, which I think it has been for a lot of people. We had to adapt to a set of circumstances none of us had been in before. So it was kind of really kind of on the hoof a little bit, trying to kind of keep keep going and keeping our service going. Um, at the same time, recognising that it was exceptional circumstances. We couldn't draw back on previous experience. This was entirely new. Um, but we had the fact we had a really good, effective um, you know, staff team with really good morale, mm. I think was a good starter. 
I think we started off in a strong position, which I think really, really helped us. I think with regards to the remote side of things, it comes with sort of benefits and difficulties in a way, doesn't it? I suppose in a way you can reach out to more people and not have to get so many in face to face. But there are certain social cues, I guess, that you miss over a Teams call or a Zoom call that you don't quite get when you're sort of communicating in person with someone. And that can go for both staff and it can also go for service users, can't it, in your case? So with all of that in mind, do you think that this is going to be something that you're going to be sort of keeping in some way, shape or form as part of the status quo going forward? Or are you hoping to move back into very much the in-person side of it? I think we'll definitely be looking at using um, all kind of forms of support. So, I mean, a blended service, hybrid service, different sort of um, terms have been used for that. But absolutely, we will be looking at, um, we're currently doing that, looking at um, doing some surveys with our service users around how their experience has been over the last sort of 15 months with both the online and occasional sort of face-to-face in-person work. And I think we've learned a lot from it. And I think some young people have really enjoyed it. Others have not liked it at all. Um, but I think there's the fact that we could then, we can now look at expanding our, our offer and saying, right, well, when we first start engaging with, with our young people and with our families, we can be saying to them, well, we can do this as a mix. What suits you? Do you prefer phone? Do you want online Zoom? Do you want face-to-face? So in some ways, it, in some ways it's expanded our offer. It's made us start doing online work, which before we'd kind of talked about saying it'll be really good. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it wouldn't work. Let's do a pilot. We've actually had to run the pilot immediately and deliver it. So I think the learning from that is something we're certainly looking at now. And we'll, I think we will continue that. And think a lot of services will do that. Thinking of, of some of the meetings and so on that we hold, those just lack the, the less travel time, the fact you can actually get people together in a, in a room, um, much more, much, many more people in Zoom room than you can sort of in a um, face-to-face meeting. I think we'll learn from that. Mm. But at the same time, there is the stuff around, the, like you say, the social cues. When you're kind of um, on a Zoom meeting, you don't necessarily pick up exactly what's happening f- for a person. Um, and we feel the same with our staff team. We're used to sort of working very closely together. You know, if you've just had a particularly um, difficult meeting, say, with one of our young people or families, you come back into the office, people are immediately there for you. You can immediately say, oh, this has gone on. Sort of let go a bit of what's happened. But, but that's not the same when you're going back and working at home. So I think the working working and the, as a team in the office has been really, really important. Mm. So I think certainly we won't be looking entirely at um, working remotely um, and working face-to-face in the, in the office and with our, our service users. We'll certainly continue, but we will have a mix of that. And just because we've picked up on mental health and well-being um, at a point already in this discussion, I do want to hone in on that a little bit more because the importance of this issue has been significantly amplified by the pandemic, hasn't it? Now, what sort of steps and techniques have you put in place to sort of keep an eye on that and keep morale high, as you talked about? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned previously, the well-being of our staff has been absolutely crucial because they're the main resource that we have as an organisation. They deliver all the work. Um, And so their well-being has been really, really important. So we've done a kind of real mix of um, support for for our staff, including um, providing extra t- external supervision, where there's someone they can go and talk to about about what's going on, particularly for them and how it how it impacts on them. We've had more kind of um, online Zoom meetings um, for staff. We're meeting kind of weekly uh, at the beginning. We've now gone to fortnightly. 
all of the individual teams within the organisation have been kind of having their catch-ups regularly to make sure that happens. We offered some reduced um, hours in the in the first um, lockdown. People could work up to 20% less, conscious of people's commitments at home around childcare and other kind of caring needs and stuff they might have at home, as well as the intensity of doing everything online um, and making sure people didn't always make sure they had a kind of gap between their meetings, which you would do if you were traveling somewhere. You'd have that little bit of downtime. So often that wasn't there. So trying to encourage people to have their kind of breaks. We'll do buddy talks. So we'd have sort of walk and talks where we'd get staff to go out, you know, walk in your local park or just walk around a little bit to take a break and have a chat with another member of staff. Not about work, just to kind of catch up about what's going on. Looking at the range of ways that we can reduce the intensity of what it was like working kind of remotely Mm. um, and making sure we were connecting in kind of all the time. We have a health and wellbeing fund as well for our staff that they're able to kind of claim up to £200 a year for something that will just make them feel good, something they enjoy doing, something that's fun. And that was particularly important this year that they could um, use that for something that would make them, you know, just just improve their own wellbeing. So we're looking at a range of, of uh, issues around, around that because that was really important that we maintain that. Same for kind of our service users who have really struggled with their kind of emotional well-being and mental health um, during the lockdown, especially for young carers who mm. would normally at least have a break when they were at school. Suddenly they were in their caring role 24 hours a day and the intensity of that has had a real impact on their well-being. So we have um, raised some additional funding to buy in some additional counselling support for our young people because that's um, something we've really noticed and we think will be continue an ongoing kind of um, issue as, as the impact of this on their lives will become become more apparent that their emotional well-being will, is, has been impacted quite severely by the pandemic. Yeah, I can imagine that the impact of sort of successive lockdowns has probably meant a real sort of surge in demand for your services, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and at the same time, it's been quite hard to um, pick up new people because normally what we, you would do, you would have a meeting with them sort of face-to-face. They, they would get to know you because the importance of our relationships we have with our uh, young carers and their families is that they're building up that level of trust so that we can, they, will, they will speak with us and talk about the issues that affect them. Sometimes the first time they've ever been asked about it, the first time they've ever spoken about it. So it's really important we build up that trust but that is suddenly having to do that online is very different from doing that face to face and like you say, picking up the social cues and everything. So we were really conscious that it was it was wasn't always easy to pick up the kind of new referrals that were coming in that had not worked with us at all. Those that had worked with us a bit before the pandemic, that was okay because we'd built up that relationship. But those new relationships to build up online, remotely, was was kind of was hard and took that little bit longer. So then that had an impact on the number of young people that we could see. Um, we're beginning to be able to see more again now that we can do some more face-to-face. That has meant that some of the young people referred into our service have had to kind of wait longer than would normally be the case. Um, and that's something we're trying to address um, mm. at the moment, but it is an issue. It is having an impact. And I know that we're sort of close to the end of social restrictions. We're, of course, recording this podcast on, um, I think it's uh, July the 5th, 2021. And we understand that the uh, the lifting of all social restrictions is due to come on the 19th of this month. So we are very, very close. But I suppose at this point in time, we are sort of in a state of limbo, aren't we, where 
when you are doing sort of those face-to-face consultations, you're still having to work under certain restrictions and that can sometimes be a little bit challenging. Yes, definitely, because when we're doing our, our, when we're on our groups with young carers, and the, the real importance of our group work is the peer support if they meet other young carers in similar situations to themselves. Having to do that social distancing does create a very different dynamic when you're working with a group of young people to all be sat at a separate desk, you know, rather than that mingling and the kind of conversations that happen and friendships that develop. So we've had to adapt to the way we work in that face-to-face. So be able to sort of, remove some of that and that becomes a bit easier, I think certainly will will benefit. But at the same time, for a lot of our young people, they're young carers because they're living with um, family members who are ill. And for a lot of young people, they're still not being vaccinated. But they're going to school and they're kind of really concerned about bringing that sort of infection back into the families, even if they're um, their parents and people they're caring for are now being vaccinated. So there's still going to be an element where there's concern for them. So we will still be looking at ways in which we keep people safe and what's the best way to run our groups so that those young people engage the best way they can. And maybe we will keep some of that the masks and some of the social distancing. If that enables more young carers to, to participate in, in, within our groups and within our service, conscious of what the kind of concerns are for them, around COVID and there's still there's still the debate going on around whether we're going to be um, vaccinating our younger people under under 16. Mm. Um, but that's that's a particular impact it has for, for young young carers, which I think is different for, for other young people. It is um, something that you have to take into account, isn't it? Because even though restrictions are going to go, I mean, there are still going to be a lot of people that are going to be sticking to them voluntarily, aren't they? Because there is still that lingering anxiety there and it could take some time for confidence to come back. And thinking back over the sort of the cold course of the uh, the pandemic and the fact that it has been so immensely difficult, so immensely tragic as well for so many, despite the ordeal, if we call it that, Sarah, would you say that your experience of leading through this last 15 or so months has sort of strengthened you as a person and as a leader in your organisation? Yes, I think definitely. Um, I think because as a leader, you are having to make decisions um, very quickly at the very, at the very beginning, but also around circumstances that you've not necessarily experienced before. And I think it's kind of highlighted my strengths, I think, the fact, the, the fact that I'm a good communicator, um, but the uh, the sense of really understanding what's going on within your staff team and, and recognising the importance of that, as well as looking externally about what we need to do around delivering a quality service. It was a lot of pressure, um, and it was very kind of intense, and you felt that you were holding people um, more than you would hold people um, ordinarily because it was so important that they felt well enough to be able to continue to deliver that service in there. And for me, then that service continue was absolutely critical. So certainly there's a lot of pressure there, but I think it did sort of highlight the sort of strength um, as a leader um, in terms of taking the organisation through. And the fact that we have continued and, and I think delivered some really, really, really good work in, in that time has been down to kind of um, making sure that people felt supported, that they were able to continue to do the work they needed to do. And they kept in mind that the, 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 our, our end goal is about making sure that those young people are supported as effectively as they can be. And to keep that kind of goal there when everybody was under so many different um, stresses, I think I feel has been a real, um, without kind of you know blowing your own trumpet, a credit to the way I've led, I've led the organisation. Mm. 
a credit to yourself and a credit to everyone working within Sheffield Young Carers as well because they sound like they've really brought the best out in themselves during this time as well and sort of lastly Sarah just before I let you go I do want to talk about what the next 12 months might bring because as we've said those social restrictions are going to be going very very soon in terms of the legal sense but for your organisation moving forward what do you expect over the next 12 months and what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by this time next year? Yes, I think the next 12 months is going to be very different again from the last 12 months and from the 12 months previously before that. There's a lot of learning from from lockdown, a lot of the learning from the pandemic that Mm. we're going to be feeding into our organisation. So I think there's there's going to be the ongoing pressures, I think, of the effects of it. In terms of like we talked about kind of mental health and and well-being, I think the impact on a lot of the services that our, our young carers and families use, the impact on schools, the impact on social services and social care and so on. So it's, we're going to really see a lot of pressures within within the system. So I think it's going to be quite a pressured time. I think there's a lot we can learn from what's happened. But I just think this next year will still be quite pressured. And um, and I think quite where in, in a year's time, what we're hoping to be is that we'll have learned a lot from this. Our service will be much more blended. We'll be able to sort of meet as many young people's needs as, as possible. But we will be working within a system that's still under a great deal of pressure. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, a year after that, we might be looking differently. But I think this next year, I don't see it particularly easy. Um, I think a lot to learn. And, and I think our service will develop but it's not going to be easy. Mm. It's going to be a crucial time for sort of the social care sector, isn't it? And I suppose if Boris Johnson's words pre-COVID were to be believed, there is a root and branch review of the whole industry that's going to be coming in before too long. And let's indeed see what comes of that. Um, In the meantime, Sarah, as we sort of wait on what's going to be happening over the next few months, um, thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme because it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you on with us. And I actually think it would be wonderful as this cloud start to clear and we know more about what's happening to actually catch up back in future and have you back on the show with us just to maybe talk more about what's happened since this discussion we've had today. Yeah, that would be great. I'm happy to speak at any time and sort of talk about experiences. It's always good to learn from other leaders as well. I've enjoyed the other podcasts in the series. I think there's a lot we can always learn from each other. Absolutely. Across every single industry, that's what we're looking to do, really get the authentic stories and accounts of British business leaders out there into the national sphere. And thank you, Sarah, for being a part of that. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on until we speak again. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Sarah Gowin, Managing Director at Sheffield Young Carers, onto the programme today. Um, Next up on the programme, we'll be joined by Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the last 15 or so months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. That will, of course, be coming up on the show now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, 
declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will, in some ways, be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shut down. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.